You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, some few to be chewed and digested. So says Francis Bacon. But who will help us design this literary menu? Left to ourselves, often our reading diets consist of empty calories and artificial flavors, or perhaps we starve, unaware of the banquet within easy reach. To us, Leland Riken extends an invitation to a feast, the feast of the classics, which can be enjoyed with a special pleasure and benefit by Christians. In his new book, A Christian Guide to the Classics, Riken makes the case, particularly to Christians, that there are great books, that they are worth reading, and that this rich and nutritive diet of classics will be good for us, good for our minds, good for our hearts, and good for our souls. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Leland Riken, Emeritus Professor of English at Wheaton College and author of The Christian Guide to the Classics, published by Crossway. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Riken. Well, thank you, David. It's an honor to be here. I also want to say I absolutely love the lead-in you just gave. <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> I labored over it. <laughs> Which may be pulling tell. pulling back the curtain a little bit too much for our listeners, but you know they they know me even if even if you've just met me. <laughs> Good. Well, we will dive right into the questions. Uh, this is a this is a really interesting book, and dear listeners, even though this is uh, not a long book, it's chock full of information and argument. So uh, coming up with a set of questions that would do it justice within uh, the time that we have was something of a challenge. But first, we should mention that this book, A Christian Guide to the Classics, seems to be something of a series introduction or a, perhaps a manifesto for Crossway's collection of Christian guides to various works, which you also wrote, sir. So yeah. what led you with Crossway to produce this series, and how has it been received? Let me reach way back and talk about my own experience as a user of guides to literary masterworks. Mm. I first encountered that kind of book as a college student, and I particularly benefited from guides to selected plays by Shakespeare. Then later I benefited from such guides as a graduate student and then as a teacher. Well, approximately 20 years ago, a publisher that carried a series of shepherd's guides to books of the Bible and uh, Christian classics, tested the water regarding literary masterpieces to see if they should add that to their series. I was courted as an editor. I authored a book. The series was never published. Hmm. However, my appetite had been whetted. So at <laughs> a certain point, I made a proposal to Crossway. It was declined on the reasonable ground that it was beyond the bound of what Crossway did. Seven or eight years later, I again submitted a proposal, and things had changed sufficiently at Crossway that it seemed a plausible thing. Uh, this kind of book plays to my strengths. I'm not a trailblazer. I'm a synthesizer. Uh, and additionally, my best work is slanted to students, and I write mid-level scholarship. Um, how's the series been received? Let me interpolate one thing. Um, yes, you're absolutely right that this is a kind of manifesto, but it's actually the tenth book published and written 
in a series of 10. So it mm. is an introduction to the series, but it's the last one to have been written in that series. <laughs> well, homeschoolers and teachers rise up and call me blessed. They love these things. <laughs> um, that doesn't necessarily um, translate into sales, and it's unclear at this point whether there will be another round of entries into this series. Mm. Well, I know as as a young homeschooler, I would have eaten I would have eaten this up with a spoon, uh, which I was. Yeah. But yes, I I, I, rem, I was as I was reading this, one of the things I was thinking was, where was this when I was fourteen? <laughs> I would have loved it. Well, uh, I was requested by my editor at Crossway to make the first ten titles books that would appeal to the homeschool market and and mm. I was very much on the page with that myself. Excellent. Well, I think one other thing I'll hope say. It works. There's there's been a really erosion of what you and I call the canon, the traditional canon of mm. works that are taught in high school and college literature courses. So, it would not be apparent to me what the next round of titles would be if mm. there is such a thing, if there's going to be another round. Hmm. Well, that actually seems to connect to uh, later parts of this conversation, I think. So we'll, I believe we'll proceed, sir. Okay. This book, uh, it aims to defend and explain your general approach to the classics. So why do classics need defense? Who are their foes, and do they have friends they also need defense from? Okay, I, I want to, in a preliminary way... I want to answer the question, why defend the classics? Well, I have two answers. I want to defend the classics because I believe in their value. Mm. Now, secondly, the question you asked, well, why do they need defense? Because they are under attack. Who mm. is attacking the classics? Well, primarily, they are under attack by a secular society and what we informally call the secular academy, that is, secular universities. I view that as a part of an assault on traditional values. Mm. Um, we can call these attackers the politically correct movement, meaning the liberal establishment. Uh, so that's what the classics need to be defended from. Do uh, the classics need to be defended from friends? Well, a few thoughts did occur to me. It's possible to overvalue the classics mm. um, as if they automatically tell us the truth, and that's not automatic. It's, uh, in regard to that, I'll say uh, it's our task as Christian readers and critics to ascertain whether a classic tells the truth, not to prove that it does. Uh, it's possible to value the classics for the wrong reasons, uh, such as viewing them primarily as a repository of ideas. Uh, it's possible to think the classics are like listening to a lecture or a sermon, whereas they are, first of all, a form of entertainment. Having sounded these cautions, I'm glad for anyone who supports the classics mm. in a day when they are unjustifiably disparaged in the secular world. Mm. Well, in particular with uh, canons of various kinds, not only the canon, but uh, canons even within disciplines being called into question as... Uh, as motives are suspected more and more with the, the hermeneutics of suspicion locating um, bad ulterior motives, uh, that any any choice of canon is necessarily an attempt to seize power over someone or something. 
that is so irrational. No one is excluded from the classics. Anyone can enter that field. Mm. Um, it's just a kind of knee-jerk reaction, in my view, against anything traditional. And I also have to say that the people who dislike, dislike the classics are also likely to be hostile to Christians. Well, one of the features that I appreciate about this book, and this is important for me because, you know, without good definitions, we make no headway. One of the things I appreciate about this book is your labor in providing a specific and a workable definition for classic. So what is a literary classic? And this I thought also was helpful. How do your definitions steer our priorities in selecting and reading books practically? because I felt like your definition actually does work. David, I want to commend a, a comment you made, by the way, just now. Without definition, we can't get anywhere. That is so true. And in, in our discipline, several decades ago, scholars decided we couldn't define what literature is. That is so self-defeating. All right, what is a classic? That's a big subject. Uh, I want to begin with a few comments on what a classic is not. First, a classic does not need to be a long masterwork, like Homer's Odyssey or Milton's Paradise Lost or Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Mm. We, we tend to think of classics as masterworks, but a, a classic doesn't have to be that. Secondly, every genre has its classics, that is, examples that rise to the top. There are classic lyric poems, classic fairy tales, classic mystery stories, classic limericks. They are within reach of anyone. We don't, we don't have to begin with the masterworks. Uh, I also want to say that I think it's very legitimate for every reader to have his or her private list of classics. That is, works that even if they're not in the public canon of classics, have all the qualities of a classic for the individual person. So I'm saying these things just to clear the ground and make make a classic seem accessible and mm. friendly. Um, I'll just insert an anecdote. Uh, just this past week, my son and I had lunch with the person who had been my personal physician for more than 30 years, and my son offered as a retirement gift that the three of us would have lunch together and discuss a classic. Hmm. So my, my friend chose um, the, um, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, and my son asked him at this luncheon, well, what was it like to read Great Expectations? And this person surprised me by saying, well, he was expecting a classic to have certain qualities, and he kept wondering what those would be. Should he be looking for symbolism? Should he be looking for everything to converge at the end? And I was totally taken aback. It never occurred to me that people would fence a classic around as being special and other than just like ordinary literature. It's better than ordinary literature, but it obeys the same rules. So, mm. you know, I think we have to clear the ground of misconceptions. All right, then, what is a classic? Here is my brief checklist for a classic. A classic has stood the test of time and is permanent instead of transitory. A classic has been influential as a cultural force. A classic has usually been part of the educational program of societies. Hmm. 
A classic is regarded as superior in its technique, style, and form. It's well done, in other words. Mm -hmm. uh, a classic touches upon life powerfully at many points and strikes us as more profound than lesser works. It is a recognized standard of excellence within its class or literary genre, such as epic or love poem. And finally, I have a subjective test. A classic is a landmark in our own literary history, either as a life-changing experience the first time we read it, or as a point of reference over many years. Hmm. Uh, sh should should the, um, the status of a work as being a classic, should the canon of classics be an influence on what we read? I think so. I don't think we should read only the classics. Uh, but I'll put it this way. If we sit down with a classic, we know it's going to be a good use of our time. We're not going to be disappointed in terms of this being a major work or a good one. That's not to say we're not disappointed occasionally by classics. I am, but not very often. And um, if I sit down with a classic and know that I, it's going to be a good use of my time, I am more inclined to set aside time for reading because I know it's going to be worthwhile. Hmm. One of the things that I appreciated about uh, your discussion of the definitions is that at least some of these, like timeless, uh, the it's timeless. It stands the test of time. Uh, you, you note that that's that is generally true, but that some books are instantly recognized uh, on <laughs> on the basis right. of possessing these other <laughs> these other traits. Yeah, They're instantly recognized as classics, and some works yeah. are unappreciated in their own times. Like Moby Dick, if oh, I remember absolutely. correctly, got terrible reviews. <laughs> Right, right, uh, right. Uh, some books, one of Madeline Lingle's books, just was rejected, you know, time after time. Mm. Yes, uh, the idea of an instant classic. I, I want to relate to ESPN, the Sports Channel. It has the boldness <laughs> to declare certain games instant classics. Um, that's not quite true of literary works because mm. one of the criteria is. It has to have been around for a while. Uh, you were writing and saying books, let's take the Narnia stories. Readers immediately recognized that these had the qualities mm -hmm. of being a classic. But it took a generation or two for them to have this quality of having stood the test of time. Right. So we can perhaps detect potential classics, so to speak. Good. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Sure. You spend an entire chapter dealing with the Bible as a literary classic, which I should have expected, <laughs> given that you were right. the literary consultant for the ESV, given that you've written a book on the King James Bible and its great con contributions to Western or to, to the English-speaking culture. At any rate, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. So how do we become better Bible readers if we view the Bible as a classic? And did you encounter any, have you encountered resistance to the idea of treating the Bible as a classic? Okay, let's, let's, uh, we'll take both of those in, in sequence. Mm. Um, what difference does it make to view the Bible as a classic? I find that certain features of the Bible are more evident when I apply the criteria of a classic to it. Mm. For example, 
the cultural centrality of a classic. Um, I can see that in Homer, all right. Well, it just alerts me to the degree to which the Bible has been that book in English-speaking um, societies. Uh, the criteria for a classic can become an avenue to seeing the greatness of the Bible. Hmm. Uh, it's a way of honoring the Bible even more. McGuffey's fifth eclectic reader was the first to declare the Bible, quote, the best of classics the world has ever admired. What a great commendation. Uh, of course, we're talking here about the Bible as a literary classic. So the moment we label it that, we become aware of the literary nature of the Bible. Um, the Bible as literature has been half of my career, really, as a scholar. Um, I have not always viewed the Bible as a literary classic. In fact, I first did that while composing a lecture on um, that I delivered at another college. That added a lot to my thinking of the Bible. It's not just literary in nature. It's a literary classic. Hmm. So I have found, I, for me, it was not an option not to include uh, a chapter on the Bible in, in a book on the classics because it, it explains a lot. It, it's our point of reference, moreover, for what's true and what's good. Uh, have I met with resistance to the idea of the Bible as a literary classic? I would say no. From the very beginning, I have received a good hearing from conservative evangelical Christians on the idea that the Bible is literature. I think this has been true because I have intertwined an apologetic strand in what I say and write. Mm. Knowing what the potential objections might be to the idea of the Bible as literature, I have made a preemptive strike <laughs> and addressed those potential objections. Mm -hmm. um, and because I have not scorned to take the objection seriously mm -hmm. uh, from from conservative Christians. I think I've had pretty clear sailing where others might not have. Mm. What sort of objections do you address? Um, there's a common equation of literature with fictionality. Okay. And I observe yeah. that. Or I was really taken aback by a pastor's wife who said she initially resisted the idea asking who would want to reduce the Bible to the level of ordinary literature. Well, that never even occurred to me. Ah. All I was doing was making a claim for just what's objectively true about uh, the Bible. So there are um, potential objections of those types. Oh, we have a tendency, I have to say, in our circles to label anything that's a new idea as being liberal maybe so i have to kind of counter the idea that there's anything inherently liberal about a literary approach to the bible mm. that you can you can take a a conservative theological stance toward the bible but also read it literarily right and that i mean the idea began with the, the writers of the bible they refer mm. i would say with technical precision to genres you know lament chronicle parable and so forth so mm -hmm. they're the ones who gave us the literary bible so the idea started with them exactly you also flip it the other way around so to speak not just is it useful to look at the bible as a literary classic but also you write that and i i i, I immediately underline this that the status of the bible as a literary classic validates the idea of classics 
And you also say that because we ordinary lim- ordinarily limit our Bible reading to the most overtly spiritual sections, we tend to have a somewhat unrealistic picture of what is of what all is in the Bible. So how can good Bible reading prepare us for the classics or limited Bible reading make us ill-prepared as readers for, of the classics? Oh, okay, let me begin with how can good <laughs> Bible reading prepare us to read the classics? Um, I want to begin with a personal note. Um, there are many ways in which I have been favored by Providence in regard to the timing of my career. Um, I came along at the best possible time to do the kinds of scholarship I do. Mm. Now, one small manifestation of this is that when I was in graduate school, the dominant literary scholar on the scene was Northrop Frye. Mm-hmm. And Frye championed the idea that the Bible should be the foundation of all literary education. It should be taught first, Frye said. Mm. So everything that came along later could settle on it. Well, I had that as a kind of platform. Uh, Even without that, I quickly found that the Bible is prototypical. If I want to see how narrative works or how a metaphor works, I can't do better, I have found, than to start with biblical examples. Um, I don't fully know why, but that's just the way it is. Uh, Also, uh, the the writers of the Bible preferred the brief unit, and that makes... There are examples of various literary techniques quite concentrated, so I wonder if that's also part of the picture. Hmm. Uh, an unrealistic picture of what's in the Bible, that, that intrigued you. Well, several of my recent book projects have required me to deal with the whole Bible, and what I found is that many parts of the Bible are governed by the dynamics of ordinary literary genres so thoroughly that the spiritual dimension is not overt. I'm referring to, for example, the military stories in the Old Testament Chronicles, Mm. uh, the love lyrics in the Song of Solomon, the list of health regulations and hygiene rules in the books of ceremonial law. There are religious implications. All I'm saying is that I have been surprised at the degree to which some of these parts of the Bible, not most, but some, or just like other examples from beyond the Bible of military history, for example, and that surprises me. The point is, until I had these projects that required me to read the whole Bible, I wasn't very aware of some of that. Hmm. I, I I do have to confess that as I read that, I felt a slight pang because in the circles, uh, certainly in the in the circles that I grew up in, and the churches I went to, you knew that the that the sermon was going to be coming from a gospel or an epistle, and you are absolutely and that correct. was that was about it. Um, our handling of <laughs> of narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, was yep. just non-existent outside of you know up to about fourth grade in Sunday school. <laughs> Yep, you're absolutely right. One of the questions you you gave me before on the interview, how can limited Bible exposure make us ill-equipped to read the classics in the Bible? Mm. Um, Well, okay, my answer is exactly what you just said. One definition of limited exposure is reading only the epistles and gospels. Mm. And, um, you know, that's just not giving us a complete picture of the Bible. And 
those parts, and to a degree, are the most spirit, overtly spiritual parts of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't equip us to read Homer's Odyssey the way reading some of the Old Testament narratives do. Mm. Well, and I suppose it would also train us to not to to not see that we would get some sort of edification from reading something in that vein, since we haven't read the things of that vein in the Bible. Right. If all we see in the Bible is is theology, we're we're just not ready to pick up other aspects of the Bible and of the classics. Mm. Well, chapters 5 and 6, I thought, gave helpful warnings and helpful advice for Christian readers of the classics. And one of the things that especially struck me because as a Christian who uh, I did my master's work in a state university, I did my PhD work in a state university, and throughout my educational career, the issue of my Christian identity and its connection to my identity as as an academic reader of literature, an interpreter of literature, was always something that was a little fraught. So one of the things that struck me as particularly interesting was that the liberating idea that Christians could see themselves legitimately as what you call an interpretive community. So what do you mean by that? How is that and how does that free us in some sense? Let me start with the idea itself before application to us as Christians. Mm. Uh, I particularly associate the idea of interpretive communities with a scholar named Stanley Fish. I would at least say he championed the idea. Mm-hmm. What it means is that everyone belongs to groups of people in, with which uh, they feel a, a kindred spirit, in which they know that they have a lot in common. They belong together. They have a shared agenda of beliefs, uh, shared experiences, and such like. All right. Applied to literature, we can call these interpretive communities. They are people who have certain shared interests in regard to literature, maybe subject matter, literary era, or whatnot. Well, Christian readers and literary critics are an interpretive community. Um, They accept the Bible as their authority for belief. They share certain values and moral guidelines and spiritual experiences. They share a whole set of assumptions. Um, in doing that, they're no different from other groups of interpretive communities. So there's nothing special other than that we have our own identity as a Christian Hmm. uh, interpretive community. Uh, The point in my book where I talk about this is a unit in which I encourage Christian readers to be themselves as readers and critics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone belongs to one or more interpretive communities. Christians are no different from other Christian communities in claiming that right. So that would be a good point to make. Christians have a right to be interested in the religious and moral dimensions of literature, to resort to the Bible when assessing the truth claims of a work of literature, or when forging a literary theory. If the secular world is not interested in those things, well, so what? Christians aren't interested in a lot of things that occupy these other literary critics. Uh, There's much in the world, in the secular world, that marginalizes Christians, Christians need each other and the academic disciplines also. I have found that just viewing myself as part of a Christian community 
has given me a place to stand. Mm. This is this is not a, a question that uh, I I sent to you. So this is one I'm just sort of dropping on <laughs> dropping on you in progress. Go for it. Have you have you found that you read authors differently if you regard the author as also a member of this interpretive community, sort of a communion of the literary saints over over time, so to speak? Well, that's really a good phrase. Uh, do you mean primarily authors of, of uh, literature or literary critics? Either, either one. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Uh, yes, a community of fellow believers over the centuries. I really like that. Yes, I feel that very strongly. With with uh, you know literary critics like Sir Philip Sidney going back mm-hmm. to the 16th century, an author like John Milton. Yeah, he's a kindred spirit. Very good. Yeah, I know that sometimes I wanted to make moves in graduate school when I was, especially in uh, early modern non-drama classes, uh, when we're reading John Donne or Herbert, people like that, that I wanted to make particular moves with those writers because I felt they were my people, that were not necessarily moves that were encouraged. And right. I, I think one of the one of the ways that this frees uh, that this frees us up uh, as as an interpretive community is not just readers in the now, but also to be able to see a kinship and Good. to bridge that gap. I, I really appreciated that, and I I plan to bring it up <laughs> in classes. Good. Yep. Well, many Christians though are skittish about reading literature that is secular uh, with writers that we don't feel that kinship with. Um, often, often I think it's perceived that there's a gulf that we, uh, we see to exist between what is overtly secular, uh, overtly secular literature and overtly Christian literature. Herbert's safe, but, you know, I'm not entirely sh- sure about that, you know, that George Orwell guy. Um, in chapters seven and eight, though, I, I think you do a good job of making, I guess, a literary taxonomy that's more more nuanced than just the overtly literate, secular and the overtly Christian. Could you sketch out those categories for uh, for a little bit for us? Yeah, I would love to. I'm going to surprise you and your listeners by saying that I first devised my taxonomy of types of literature when composing an article for a Sunday school quarterly. (laughs) Uh, I've expanded my taxonomy since then, but I'm going to start with that original scheme. I delineate three categories of literature as viewed from my perspective as a Christian reader. Mm. They are the literature of Christian belief, Mm -hmm. the literature of clarification or common experience, and the literature of unbelief. The middle category needs some explanation. It is literature that is consonant with Christian belief and experience, but in which the author does not signal an explicit allegiance to the Christian worldview. It is non-sectarian or neutral in the sense of potentially being something that people of many intellectual allegiances could affirm, including Christians. Uh, With this literature, every reader can meet on common ground because the literature is affirming the common human lot and the shared experiences of the human race. 
a nature poem by a romantic poet would be an example, hmm. or a love poem by a Renaissance poet. Now, a lot of the literature that I teach falls into this middle category. Let me keep going. My, my three categories roughly correspond to a framework that I have used from the beginning of my teaching career. At some point in every course, I stand at the board and draw two overlapping circles, partly overlapping. The left circle represents Christian belief and morality, and the right circle represents other philosophic and ethical viewpoints. The two circles overlap in the middle. I label the middle overlapping area inclusively Christian material, meaning that it includes Christianity and other religious or philosophic positions. Hmm. The part of the left circle that falls outside of the overlapping area I call explicitly or exclusively Christian material, not inclusively. And then the, the material of the right circle that falls outside of the shared um, middle area is non-Christian and potentially anti-Christian. I have found that a really useful framework to use. Mm. But we needn't... Uh, one of the things that I found was interesting is that you find, you find uses in... Uh, a usefulness for Christians for reading in, in all three of those categories, actually. It's not a, <laughs> which of these three do you not read? No, you can, we can read all three fruitfully. And the uses that we find in each are different with each category. Right, right. One of the uh, things that you noted in regard, especially to the the Christian classics, the, the overtly Christian ones, um, you observe that most Christians across sectarian lines often enjoy the same Christian classics because that overwhelmingly the Christian classics reside in a realm of mere Christianity, and those are your words, which uh, I think is why I can simultaneously enjoy, you know, reading reading things from Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and, you know, other, other writers who would have identified with, with different, uh, different areas in different sects or, or uh, corners, whatever you want to say, of Christianity. But it made me wonder, would you regard a sectarian bent in a Christian book that is a not mere Christianity, um, a sectarian bent in a Christian book, would it be a kind of literary failing in that sense? Would it fail to be a Christian classic because it was not mere in that sense? Um, David, I want to commend you for asking a question I had never t thought about before you asked it. <laughs> uh, I have several answers. It's a good question. Um, first, a lot depends on how aggressively the author asserts a specialized viewpoint. Okay. If the sectarian bias is heavy-handed and leaps out at me, I would label that overly didactic or propagandistic. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, would be a flaw of technique, objectionable, no matter what the viewpoint is. Mm -hmm. uh, readers with literary sophistication want literature to be subtle and indirect instead of, instead of preachy. Mm. Secondly, if the sectarian viewpoint obeys the ordinary rules of literature with meanings nicely embodied in the story or poem, then I think it makes a difference to me whether or not I agree with the sectarian viewpoint of the work. Mm -hmm. 
If I disagree, I may find the sectarianism an obstacle. I'm not defending that, but merely observing it. In principle, I think we should try to cultivate an ecumenical ability to endorse a broad range of Christian literature, mm. even though we should always be ready to exercise our prerogative to disagree with a viewpoint. I came to this mere Christianity point while writing a paragraph for my book in which it just dawned on me that um, I'm, I'm usually in agreement with Christian writers of literature, whereas writers of religious books beyond literature I'm often in disagreement with, or it's a combination of agreeing or disagreeing. Why am I so overwhelmingly agreeable to what Christian literary authors put? Well, I think because they tend to give me mere Christianity, and um, so I accept them. Mm. It made me think, as I was reading that particular bit, if I could think of exceptions and whether or not I could... Um, <laughs> forgive them, so to speak, or if it had affected my, my reading. It made me think of, well, for one thing, uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen, which you can read at least one layer of the allegory that he has going in, in book one as uh, deeply anti-Catholic anti -Catholic and, and pro-Protestant um, right across uh, the, history, uh, the history of England. But it occurred to me that you needn't, you can read that layer, but you needn't always read it. You could also read it in the, you can also read a mere Christian layer. And, and I hadn't noticed necessarily that particular distinction before um, in my reading like of Spencer. T.S. Eliot had a theory of Shakespeare's plays that we can enjoy them at various levels. We can read mm -hmm. for the plot, we can enjoy the characterization, we can enjoy the style, and that readers or viewers of Shakespeare respond at the level at which they are prepared to respond, and now the key point, and are not bothered by layers or levels that they can't accept. So maybe something like that is going on in what you described. You're, you're quite capable of reading at one level and aren't bothered by this other level if you choose not to be. Mm -hmm. Also, um, for me, an example would be Dante. Most of uh, Dante's Catholicism I can absorb as mere Christianity, but the concluding pages of the Paradiso, way at the end, just have certain Catholic things that are um, objectionable to me. Mm -hmm. Though I, I, I think most Christians can get to the end and talk about the love that turns the sun and stars and feel a sense of... Uh, worship, I think, at that point. Yeah, I, I have to say, at that point, I quote uh, George Herbert's poem, Love Three, where God is pictured as welcoming the sinner into heaven, and it's the contrast that I call attention to in, in my classes. Mm. I'm not saying I can't get anything out of <laughs> the beatific vision, but, you know, just staring at light in an amphitheater doesn't quite do it for me. <laughs> well, well, we aren't yet prepared for that beatific vision, I guess. <laughs> no, no, we're not. Well, and Dante's not, not actually giving it to us. Well, right. you talk about in, um, I guess it's in that layer of the inclusively Christian, uh, that there are Catholics, or not Catholics, ah, 
moving on from that last question, that there are qu uh, classics in within that, I guess, inclusively Christian l layer of overlap, which Christians would regard as as theirs, um, that that they would see them as Christian classics, but which the broader academy or more bro or more more broadly historically. Um, they've not been recognized as Christian classics. You call these unacknowledged Christian classics. Since I'm also uh, a, a laborer in the vineyard of literature or whatever, um, I found these these pages were especially interesting to me because they gave me a window into your scholarly career and the kinds of things that you've done in in that side of your life. Could you take a few moments to share from share about your small side career as a rehabilitator of misrepresented Christian <laughs> classics? Yes. I want to reframe the uh, that initial uh, angle a little. Sure. These are not works that fall into the middle category. Okay. They are explicit, explicitly Christian, but they're misrepresented as not being or, or even being anti-Christian. Ah, okay. Um, yes. Uh, when I claim to have had a small side career as a rehabilitator, rehabilitator of misrepresented Christian classics, I need to be suitably modest. Most of this rehabilitation <laughs> has gone on in the classroom, uh, but with the exception of Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter and multiple writings in which I have built upon a conviction that I reached somewhat late in my teaching career that Shakespeare is a Christian writer. I will briefly reconstruct the process that typically unfolds. Often it began in a secular classroom in graduate school, where Christian classics like the Scarlet Letter were treated as non-Christian or anti-Christian. Hmm. Or possibly I encountered this misrepresentation in published literary criticism. Now, I have a passion for the truth, and when I see Christian works being suppressed or misrepresented, I become a crusader. Um, I think I would not have become so firm in my conviction if I not, had not already sensed that I disagreed with those interpretations. But in every case, as I kept reading, I found literary critics who agreed with the Christian interpretation. I've, I've never been a solitary voice in mm. these rehabilitation efforts. Um, what happens typically is that I then forge my Christian interpretation. Uh, I get a lot of good insights from these Christian interpreters of it. Then I go back to the work, and I see typically more and more Christian elements, become more and more convinced that uh, I'm onto something good, and I present them in the classroom or occasionally in print as Christian classics. So I feel invigorated. As you know, we live in a day of revisionism in the academy. Mm in which all of the old established interpretations are called into question. So here I am, the conservative. When am I going to have my fun at revisionism when it comes <laughs> with these rehabilitation efforts? <laughs> That's great. When you say Christian interpreters, uh, you, you said earlier, I'm assuming that you mean scholars who give an interpretation of a text that tracks with Christianity, not that these scholars are themselves necessarily Christians. That is true. Okay. Uh, yeah. But often they are. Often they are. Brian's okay. Christian and so forth. Yeah. Um, a book entitled American Literature and Christian Doctrine. Mm -hmm. Much disparaged. 
in the modern era. I think it's a great book. It, it set me on the right path um, in, for a lot of masterworks of uh, American literature. Hmm. Who's the author on that? I, I'm not familiar with it. I was afraid you were going to. <laughs> I do not know. All I can say is names are the first to go when one reaches his 70s. I don't remember. Well, I, I will look that up when we're done recording and put a link in the show notes, dear listeners. Okay. I did have one uh, one additional question as you're as you're talking uh, as you were talking about that is the the motivation for wanting to reject or debunk the Christian reading is this is this is something that I've encountered is critics who seem to assume or or argue without a great deal of support for a certain irony or um, insincerity in particular writers' uh, affirmations of Christian belief, assuming that they, they, they say that they say this, but they can't mean it. And, and I've right. wondered... Well, I even find that among some Christian colleagues. Right. It really irritates me. <laughs> uh, yes, the data is there, but we're not going to take it seriously. Yeah. Um, Where does that come from? The agenda in many a secular classroom is to disparage Christianity. Okay. And it's, it's the hatred of the light, of the darkness for the light. Mm. Jesus spoke of it. And he also said, in the world you will have tribulation. And I mm -hmm. think there's a scholarly uh, branch of that. Hmm. See, you know, as I've read some of those, I, I sometimes the impression that I got was that the scholar was so sympathetic to this particular writer, they found them insightful and connected to them in, in certain ways, but they they couldn't understand or sympathize with the Christianity, so it couldn't have been sincere. <laughs> <laughs> Very good observation. You know, this intelligent person couldn't be. possibly be here. Right. Yeah. Ah. Yep. Uh, anyway, uh, as a as someone who wrote a dissertation on Beowulf, you can you can imagine that I've <laughs> I've had to deal with quite a lot of. Uh, well, for, fortunately these days not as not as much, but but over the over the decades, the arguments about whether or not the the writer is coming from a Christian perspective, and how relevant that perspective even is is um, i it just seemed yep. obvious to me, but sometimes right. it's hard to argue <laughs> well regarding the uh the secular the secular classics and including the ones that you would put in that non or even anti christian section of your overlapping circles. You make a uh, what I think for many Christians would be a breathtaking claim that we need to, and I'm I'm these are your words, quote, <laughs> we need to assume that we can find God in secular literature, even in the literature of unbelief. Unquote. How do we well, do well, that? Let me, let me unpack it. Uh, first of all, I didn't set out to shock anybody. That, that would be out of character for me. Uh, secondly, as I say in that context, I first encountered the idea early in my career that it was written, the book was written about modern literature by a liberal critic, mm. liberal Christian. 
uh, he found God in the literature of sensuality, in the literature of unbelief, and that was a real turnoff to me. Now, I'm not in that person's camp, but as the years have unfolded, I think there is a way in which I can defend the idea of finding God in the literature of unbelief. Um, first of all, I'm speaking as a reader-response critic at that point. I'm talking mm -hmm. about what's happening inside of me, not something that I'm claiming the author put in. Mm -hmm. uh, let's leave literature out of the equation for a moment. One of the interpretations I have encountered of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes is that the negative pictures of life under the sun are really a Christ-shaped vacuum. Hmm. In the circles in which I move, it is common to speak of every person having a God-shaped vacuum or heart that either God fills or that remains unfilled. So the relevant consideration for us is that the unfilled human heart and longing is God-shaped. Hmm. If so, we can speak of finding God in this person's unbelieving life. We are supplying the element of God in our thinking about the situation how then can we find God in the literature of unbelief? Well, my answer is we just function normally as Christians. We read in an awareness that God is the answer to the lost condition. We read with the statement in our heads that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So we read the literature of unbelief in an awareness that we're looking at the lostness that Jesus came to save or of the difference that belief in God would make in that situation. Hmm. Uh, so that's my explanation of what I said. What do we miss if we don't, if we avoid this literature and don't look for um, the liter the literature of the Christ-shaped hole, as you put it? I think we miss an opportunity to find part of the truth about human experience in a fallen world. Mm. Um, a John Milton as Christian writer can show me the lost state, but I think reading about the lost state by someone who is an unbeliever uh, can give me insight into that. Uh, there's one other angle which is quite in a different vein. Um, we can accept part of a work of literature without accepting all of it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I myself view the writer's task as threefold, to present human experience. Well, overwhelmingly, writers do that. They are gifted as observers of human life. Um, it is their task to create literary form for my enjoyment. Well, I can always affirm that part of a work. Writers also offer an interpretation of the experiences that they present, and that's where they often go wrong. So. Even in this literature of unbelief, and I don't read a lot of it, I want to be clear about that, I think some exposure to it is important. Um, and there are always aspects of that work that I can affirm. And, you know, to know what the lost state is like and what people in our culture who have that worldview really believe, mm -hmm. I think that's pretty useful information. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I, re I really appreciated that that part of it too because I've had to. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you've ever, well you probably have experienced this, but when I first started working as uh, 
as an English professor, as a Christian, explaining my job to people I went to church with, there often was either tacitly or overtly um, the expectation that I would give an account for my vocation in which oh, really? I often have wow. to assign people to read um, books that are not only overtly Christian, but it contain things that um, Christians disapprove of, whether morally or uh, in terms of the the philosophy or worldview embodied, and right. att attempting to attempting to justify that has uh, sometimes been a challenge because I I feel like I see the value of what I do from the inside, and sometimes explaining mm -hmm. that, especially in a short conversation, is tough. Right, I can see that. But I I, I felt like you gave me some tools, and I I I, I appreciated that. Well, we, oh, you know, wow. one thing I want to put on the table, the, the doctrine of common grace, mm. which holds that God endows all people with some capacity for the true, the good, and the beautiful, uh, that has been a cornerstone of my literary theory. I found so revealing that uh, a cultural critic named Nancy Piercy said in one of her books that when she goes on the lecture circuit, often no one in her audience has ever heard of the doctrine of common grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, that's another good one to good one to include there. Yep. Well, I am looking at our time and it looks as if our hour <laughs> is almost up. Well, I'm astounded. <laughs> <laughs> it moved fast. Yep. Well, we are we are approaching the end of our conversation, but at the end we we hosts of the Christian Humanist Profiles uh, like to send, uh, surrender the helm, so to speak, to our guests and uh, let them let them have the have the last word. So, sir, if there's any any threads we've begun spinning already in the conversation or elements in the book that you would like to share with our readers before we're done, uh, you have as much time as you'd like to take. It's only a comment on the book. It's a hundred-page book. There was very little that I, based on new research, it was a bringing together of, you know, things I've written about for 45 years. Mm. And uh, it's as though I, I took my reader into my office and opened my file cabinet and started opening files of the really good <laughs> stuff I had collected over the years. Awesome. Uh, when I was looking at this book before our interview, it just struck me. That's the kind of book it is. Uh, a sharing of the best um, material stated in the best way that I've uncovered. Excellent. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing it with me. I appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. And I thank you for coming on our show, sir. You're welcome. Well, dear listeners, that's all the time that we have for today. If you'd like to leave any feedback for this show, when the show notes post on our blog at christianhumanist.org, you can leave comments there. You can also send us an email to our address at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post on our Facebook page. The book that we've been talking about, A Christian Guide to the Classics by Dr. Leland Riken, is available now from Crossway. We'll include a link in the show notes when those post. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm David Grubbs. 
imploring you to be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.